You're listening to the Cane and Cup podcast. My name is Henry Crossman. I'm 71 years old, a farmer, and I got a beef to pick with my banker. You see, I recently watched a video that showed how my banker is making about 30 times more interest on my money than what they pay me. On my own darn money. And here's the kicker. This is a perk you, me, and almost all regular Americans can take advantage of, too. Here's how it works. Say I put a 1000 bucks in the bank. These bankers then funnel some of the money into a little-known account that earns 5% tax-free. But little guys like us never hear about it. So the net result is they make 5%. We get horse dung in return. That's why I'm taking a stand. I just watched a video for BankersHideMoney.com. They talk about how we can grab these higher tax-free returns for ourselves. So do yourself a favor. Write down this address. www.WhereBankersHideMoney.com That's www.WhereBankersHideMoney.com Don't let your banker screw you over. Will Kane, S.E. Cop, R. Kane and Cup, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to Kane and Cup. I'm Essie Cup. Will Kane is sitting across from me. I am again. Truth, fact. I made it back for another week. Uh, I decided today so that I wouldn't miss the first three minutes of the show while getting iced tea to bring two iced teas large iced teas into the studio so I don't even have to leave. All that means is in the second segment you will be in the bathroom. While I, I don't, I don't know. I don't do that. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, it's Saturday morning. Thanks for joining us again. We're real excited to be here. Um, we're going to start with a really hot talker. It was a big sports story of the week. But also, later in this hour, we're going to uh, we're going to ask you whether you think the GOP needs Rand Paul as much as the as much as Rand Paul needs the GOP. We'll get into that. Hmm. Also, um, should a company be able to fire you for campaign contributions you make to an issue that the company doesn't agree with? We'll, we'll unpack that later. And apparently Will has some kind of shoe fetish that I'm unaware of. And uh, I didn't even ask. I didn't want to know. Women's shoes. Well, I assumed. Well, is there any other kind? Yeah, I could have a closet full of, you know, elephant slippers and ostrich low tops. But what we're talking about. Why do you have to make this even weirder than it already was? Uh, (laughs) Will's got a shoe fetish. I don't even know about it. So you will find out about it along with me. But first, this was a big story today. And in fact, I um, I ended up doing some talking about this on sports radio. It was a big sports talker. Um, It was opening week, uh, I guess, for, for, for Major League Baseball. And there was a brouhaha because a Mets second baseman, let me highlight, Daniel Murphy is a Mets second baseman. She's doing this because Essie went on sports radio this week and gave a very good opinion about this topic we're about to go into, which is paternity in Major League Baseball. But she made the mistake of suggesting that the center of point in this controversy, Daniel Murphy, the second baseman for the, for the New York Mets, wasn't available for the opening pitch of the season. Meaning That's not quite what I said. Throw it. That's not quite what I said. I was trying <laughs> it to generalize. the seriousness of her point. Many- I was trying to generalize. I know Daniel Murphy is a second baseman and not a pitcher. I am a Met fan, in fact. I was trying to generalize and say, look, anyway, okay, let me, let me, <laughs> let me explain the story because now we're just being confusing. The story is Daniel Murphy's wife, 
goes into labor with her firstborn child on opening day. Fine. He is not going to be there for opening day on second base. He goes to be with his wife in the hospital. And under uh, the players' union contract, he is allowed to take another three days. He takes one other day. Now, there is a New York sports personality named Mike Francesa, who uh, New Yorkers all know. He is loud and, I I think, pretty obnoxious, but he's got a lot of fans. Um, He did not understand this. He was apoplectic at the idea that men should get time off to be with their wives or newborn babies. Uh, let me let me just play uh, play clip number three. This is what he had had to say about taking a day to be with your wife or, or newborn baby. One day I understand. And in the old days they didn't do that. But one day go see the baby be born and come back. You're a major league baseball player. You can hire a nurse to take care of, your, the, take care of the baby if your wife needs help. I mean, I, I, I'm being honest. I don't see why you need... What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do, Will? You going to stare at the baby? You going to stare? You're just going to sit there and stare at the baby? What are you going to do? Um. Okay, let's break this down. Because it gets worse. Let me just... Let me put it out there for, for people listening in. It gets worse. Um. The idea that a guy would want to, to be there for his wife and newborn child for a day is really not that mind-blowing or new or shocking. I know that, like, institutionalized paternity leave is a newer phenomenon. Right. However, however, um, this is not just always for the woman who needs help. This is often because the man wants to bond with his new baby. Go figure. This is often, I assume, in this case, because the man has decided that a baseball game is less important than being with wife and baby for a day. Go figure. Um, Mike Francesa seems to be completely apoplectic. And in fact, he goes on to brag and say, well, when when my son, when my son Harrison was born, he was born at 9 a.m. And I was back to work that day bragging about how uninvested he was in the birth of his child bragging and the importance and the importance of of that moment. His job. Well, oh, yeah, and and overstating the importance of his job, as if the world was going to come to an end if Mike Francesa wasn't back on the radio talking about baseball. Um, As I said, this got got worse. Mike Francesa, Uh caveman that he is, asked himself rhetorically where this kind of phenomenon began. Play that. It started with natural childbirth is where it started because it started being in the old days – Guys weren't present. You know, they were in a waiting room when they had births. Then they went to this natural childbirth stuff. So the guys were part of it. So they were in the room and they were there and everything. So now they need to I, be there because they were part of it. <laughs> Time out. I, I, I have questions. So do I, Will. So do I. <laughs> this started with natural childbirth? Which he thinks is new. Well, natural <laughs> childbirth? Is the oldest form of giving birth. Childbirth. <laughs> that newfangled natural childbirth where men are in the room. What? It doesn't what? make any sense. Whatsoever. Well, he doesn't know. And this is where he's wading into like Todd Aiken territory. Like, yes, Mike Francesa, tell me more about what happens during natural childbirth. I'd love to know your opinion. 
We need to say, because Mike Francesa is an easy guy for some reason. I want to get into that in just a moment. An easy guy to beat up on. But he wasn't the only one. No, he wasn't. And shockingly, I'm not a Francesa fan. I am a fan of Boomer Esiason. The morning show host on WFAN on that same channel, Boomer Esiason, had in many ways what was a more offensive take. Oh, he he doubled down, man. Play that. I always said C-section before the season starts. I need to be I need to be at opening day. I'm sorry. This is what makes our money. This is how we're going to live our life. This is going to give my child every opportunity to be a success in life. I'll be able to afford any college I want to send my kids right. to because I'm a baseball player. I would have said C-section. I've got to play an opening day. She should have scheduled a C-section before the season started. I, what kind of Neanderthals... A, think this way, and B, think it's appropriate to say this out loud. Well, let me, if I could, let me work through a couple of caveats to get to what I think is a certainty here. Um, First of all, when when I hear these opinions, um, I immediately think, well, one of the things that that offends me or rubs me the wrong way is a man stepping into another man's life, Mm -hmm. into his family life, and dictating by the authority of his microphone or his opinion how another man should be running his family. However, I caveat that because we all have opinions about the way people raise their children. And we're going to talk about that, by the way, later in this show. I have opinions. Every time I go to the playground and see the way someone's raising or disciplining their child, I have opinions. So I have to caveat my own point. Maybe it's because Mike Francesca... Francesca, Francesca is so <laughs> unappealing. Maybe it's because a radio yeah. personality is stepping in and dictating the way somebody should run their life. But again, <laughs> that I appreciate that, John. I do. You know why? Because I recognize the hypocrisy of the microphone in front of me as I do this. That was Will. That drop was Will <laughs> trying to pronounce the word ephemeral. <laughs> I recognize that I am a man with a microphone on the radio talking about people's words. families. <laughs> Ephemeral. All right. All right. All right. I'm making a serious point here, no, John. I can hear that all day. Here, finally, it's this. I also think there's a length of time at which all of us will have opinions. If you opted out of work for a month, six weeks, three weeks, I would probably sooner or later come to the opinion, get back to work. Your paternity leave, whether or not bargained for, and I realize that's longer than the collective bargaining agreement allows for them. But at some point, it does become a valid opinion. Get back to work. But the caveat is, it's not two days. It's just not two days. And all of those caveated opinions lead me to this certainty. Mike Francesa is a jerk. I learned my lesson last week. Thank you for choosing a radio-appropriate word. Can everybody give me a golf clap on that one? Jerk. Yes, thank you. Uh, no, I, I agree. We can argue over the length. I'm sure you're right that there is a uh, there is a length too long. It is not for Mike Francesa to decide, nor is it for Boomer Esiason to get involved in the, the, the Murphy's family planning. And to his credit, he apologized to the Murphys. Boomer Esiason did do that. And, and Brit, the, you well, know, because it's indefensible. Boomer Esiason is infinitely more likable than Mike Francesa, and his apology has, been, has come more readily. I think that's why we're focusing yeah. on Francesa, to be honest. Well, yeah, um, because he's a mook. I mean, this guy is a mook, and, well, he is. And, and Boomer seems to at least have realized that he said something he shouldn't have. I just don't understand how you live in the world and interact with humans and feel it's appropriate to communicate those opinions. Can I ask you a quick question? I was under the impression you were a Boston Red Sox fan. 
No, that's my my dad, my husband. Okay. I'm a Met fan. I was about to accuse you of sports bigamy. Oh no, never. Which is a cardinal sin. One hundred percent, totally agree. Sports monogamy, born with your team, don't get to choose your team, and don't get to change your team. I'm under exactly very few situations are any of those rules broken. Totally agree. I'm with you. Um, all right, I want to. Uh, I, I, I my mind is like still reeling from the Francesa Boomer sign. Reeling. I just can't wrap my mind around this. But uh, coming coming up next, we're going to talk about another guy who drives some people crazy but also has a ton of fans. That's Rand Paul. We're going to uh, get your thoughts on that next. Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Came one day I understand. Now. And in the old days, they didn't do that. But one day, go see the baby be born and come back. You're a major league baseball player. You can hire a nurse. What are you going to take do? Care of the, take care of the baby if your wife needs help. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? I mean, I do, I, I'm being honest. I do. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? How many days should you take off for a funeral, Mike? What are you, you going to do? What are you going to do? Stare at the corpse? <laughs> a couple days, huh? What are you going to do? do? Why go to the funeral? What are you going to do? Stare? It's so, it's Dope. like he grew up in the dark ages. What does Mike Francesa think happens when a woman gives birth? Welcome back to Kane Cup. I am Will Kane along with SC Cup. We're still talking about. What are you going to do? Mike Francesa, host at WFAN along with Boomer Sison, who had some very harsh words to say about Met second baseman Daniel Murphy, who took two games off for paternity when his son was born. We've got some good tweets. Several of you are tweeting in Rocky with an I. Natural childbirth. It's a fad. It'll never last. Yeah, this is because Francesa seems to think that natural childbirth is new. Is new. Is like a scientific invention. That's when this problem started. <laughs> natural childbirth. G. Stolfsis at Footloose 1791. Dan Murphy should be celebrated, especially considering all the Sean Kim types in the world who have 11 kids to 9 gals. I like C. Culotta, who tweeted, It's also opening day, a.k.a. the first game of a million-game season. <laughs> like, this this isn't... I mean, it's consequential. Look, I'm not one of those girls that's like, oh, who cares about sports? I like sports. I know it's consequential. But actually, compared to the birth of your child, it's not. Francesca went on to suggest that, like, this is a sacrifice you make when you're a Major League Baseball player. No. Actually, if you miss the birth of your child because you're on tour in Iraq, that's a sacrifice. When you miss the birth of your child for a baseball game, that's between you and your wife, if she's still your wife after you make that decision. That's it. I I mean, these guys live in such rarefied worlds that they think the rest of the world uh, thinks as much of sports as they do. And they seem to forget that these guys play a game and go home. They play a game, they go home to their wife and their family and their church and their friends and their community and their philanthropy. They do other things. 
Well, and like this tweet just mentioned about we should be celebrating somebody who honors their family, you know, there's this mentality. And trust me, um, I understand where some of it's coming from. You know, um, men don't need to necessarily be there for the childbirth. I've, you know, some of my, my dad's friends, some of the previous generation of men I, I've worked for and hung out with, I, I worked on a ranch in Montana for a year. And, you know, I don't know that the mentality would have been, you, I know it wasn't, you need to be there in the room when your child is born. But that's between a, a woman and a, a wife and a husband. If Daniel Murphy had decided not to take paternity leave, I would not be criticizing him. Right. That's between him and his wife. But I th- I also consider it a sign of manliness to be dedicated to your family. Yeah. To put your wife and your child at the top of your priority list. Mm-hmm. Work is important. But the point of it is to provide for those that depend upon you. One of the points of it. It's also to create and be a productive human being. But to put those people who are most important to you and depend on you as the highest priority, that is a character of manliness. I completely agree. And all I was thinking about during this, and I listened to the whole Francesa thing. It's like more than 20 minutes he goes on about this. And I, I tried to put myself in the position of Mrs. Francesa and how I would feel. Like, am I turned on? By my husband bragging about how disinterested he was in the birth of his three children. Am I does that make me attracted to him? Do I think that's manly? I, I can't I can't imagine being feeling good about that in her in her shoes. And maybe they have a relationship where she loves that he's not involved that way. I don't know. But it was it was really bizarre to me. And and frankly, it it felt like it felt like these guys were living in a different era. I love that Daniel Murphy decided I'm going to be home with my wife. I'm going to take a day that I'm allowed to take. And you know what the Mets manager said? Of course he can. We weren't upset about that at all. Families forever. Baseball, who knows? You could be done in a season. Well, you know what? I'm going to tell you what it is. It's not necessarily um you know, the mentality of a previous generation. It's not necessarily closed off sports world mentality and it's not necessarily neanderthal thinking i think what it is 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 partially this many people in our business get caught up in the process of image making this is who i am and if i can latch myself onto this opinion then it reinforces the image i want people to have of me and in the sports world that i'm a man i'm tough i'm a bro mentality is part of it and i got back to work the day after my child was born in their minds feeds into that exact thing and that's why i make the point about manliness you know taking two days to be with your wife and newborn son that's manliness and he got caught up so much in the shallowness of his image making that he found himself now advocating for something that i don't think at all fits what he's trying to project well i think on the in the case of francesa you're right i don't understand I don't understand where Boomer was coming from when he suggested that a woman should schedule a C-section around opening day. I don't, I don't understand that. I mean, what, does he not know the science of how invasive a procedure that is? That puts a woman in the hospital for a week as opposed to leaving the next day. No, no, no. C-sections aren't the problem. It's that natural childbirth thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's because of natural childbirth. That's when this problem started. That's when everything began. What are you going to do? Natural, that newfangled natural childbirth. Who invented that? I think, I think <laughs> Miley Cyrus invented natural childbirth. Yeah? Before that, guys got back to work right afterwards. Yeah. Before, before people started having babies naturally, back in the good old days, 
Um, you know, guys were right back at work. Back when they did it surgically. <laughs> oh, I'm just so glad neither of these guys are running for office on a Republican ticket because we would be on CNN and Real News having to defend or explain these guys for the next month and a half. And all would we'd be talking about come 2014 is how that idiot Republican said it started with natural childbirth. Well, speaking of 2014, 2016 specifically, Rand Paul. Yeah. Is he good for the Republican Party? Does the Republican Party need Rand Paul? Does he have a place on that debate stage? And the Republican primary debates come two years from now. That's what we'll talk about next on Kane and Cup, 888-900-3393. We'll be back in just a moment. This is Kane and Cup. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. I'm not here to tell you what to be. I am here to tell you, though, that your rights, especially your right to privacy, is under assault. That, of course, was Kentucky Senator Rand Paul. And he was speaking at Berkeley. Yes, that Berkeley. Out in California, in the belly of the beast, to a very young, ostensibly liberal crowd. Although, they gave him some standing O's during that speech. And that's because... Rand Paul really, um, his values on on many issues really square well with millennials. His values on civil liberties, his positions on NSA spying, extrajudicial killing, um, drones, really square well with the way a lot of millennials think about those issues. In fact, they think more like him than they do President Obama on some of those issues. Now, some would suggest that because Rand Paul has a natural alignment with some millennial voters and is getting out there and reaching out to minority voters and women voters, that he's got a better shot at winning the GOP nomination and eventually the presidency than some other folks, say Chris Christie, Ted Cruz, Jeb Bush, who might be considered more mainstream and with fewer outlier positions. That's false. I, I, I agree, but, but not entirely. Um, the, the, there's consternation in the GOP among the moderates and the establishment hawks over Rand Paul's outlier foreign policy positions. That's true. Now, are you going to fact check me through this whole segment? That's true as well. Okay. Uh, that's fine. Rand Paul's foreign policy, as most people are aware, certainly our listeners are aware, uh, is considered a bit non-interventionist. Now, it's not as isolationist as his father's, Ron Paul's, but he's got some outlier positions on foreign policy that put him outside of the norm when it comes to 
Republicans. Let me just say for a moment that that distinction you just made has largely been lost in the public debate. There is no distinction, unfortunately, in the public debate between non-interventionists and isolationists. Well, there's As a, a result, Oh, of course there's a difference. Yeah. There's a massive difference, right? Yes. And the, uh, the, dis- the distinction is lost in the public debate. So one of the harms to Rand Paul's potential ability to win and why I said he could ever win the primary, win the nomination – um, is because he will be painted as an isolationist, when in fact he is more in line with what we would call a non-interventionist. Which, which even that still presents problems for Rand Paul. Inexplicably. Anyway, uh, it's just a fact. It presents problems. And even Rand Paul seems to be aware of the fact that this might hurt his presidential chances because he is, quote-unquote, evolving on foreign policy. Now, especially where it comes to Israel and foreign aid, he is reaching out to his uh, pro-Israel groups in order and donors in order to open a dialogue because this has been a huge sticking point for Rand Paul between Rand Paul and GOP establishment hawks, his position on Israel and foreign aid. And he is trying to soften that in advance of a presidential election. Now, let me put aside the fact that I don't love it when candidates change their positions to cater to certain audiences. Let's put that aside. The fact is he is acknowledging this is a problem and he's trying to ameliorate that um, that that issue for himself. What I think is is that Rand Paul, whether you think he should be president or not, and actually um, I, I don't think he's the perfect presidential candidate, although if he won the nomination, I'd be OK supporting him. Whether you think that or not, I see Rand Paul as a gateway drug. (laughs) He is a gateway drug to the GOP. Now, we don't we don't um, need to turn out heroin addicts. And Rand Paul is not going to get you addicted to Republican heroin, but he'll get you interested in the party. If you're a young libertarian or a young college student and you're listening to someone like Rand Paul, and he is talking sweet, sweet about uh, civil liberties and things that you agree with. And he's suggesting that on social issues, he's a little bit more nuanced than the rest of the GOP candidates. He's getting you interested. And if he can get you interested, maybe later he can get you hooked on our party, even at the expense of himself. So his idea might be to shore up all of these different demographics so that he can become president. I actually don't care. What I care about is he is introducing new voters to the Republican brand. So let me adjust your analogy just a little bit. Instead of Rand Paul being the gateway drug and then calling that the Republican heroin, let me suggest this. The question is, is Rand Paul, he's essentially the e-cigarettes of politicians. Which How way? So? How so? The debate over e-cigarettes, and we may talk about this a little later in the show, is whether or not e-cigarettes are introducing non-smokers to yes. cigarettes or helping or you quit smokers off of cigarettes. So you think Rand Paul might might also be helping you quit the GOP in favor of a libertarian? Is Rand Paul moving non-traditional conservatives, non-traditional Republicans towards the Republican Party, towards our values, 
Or is he pulling Republicans in a libertarian direction? Is he making libertarian views more palatable to Republicans? Either way, it's a win in my book. Either way, it's a positive. I think we have to say this and we can dismiss it. The most boring aspect of Rand Paul that we've introduced today is whether or not he is electorally viable. I think the answer is no. The country does not rise and fall on the vote of Will Cain. My opinion does not sway singularly the presidential election. If it did, Rand Paul would be a very viable presidential candidate. He would be able to win. But unfortunately, three or you know whatever, a hundred other million of you out there have votes. And he simply, with those foreign policy views, is going to have a hard time gaining yeah. Republican primary acceptance. Agreed. And, and he knows that. And by you know whatever he hopes to gain in the millennial quarter— with his NSA views, and I believe he's principled, by the way. They're not just for political gain, but it does not offset what he would lose in the Republican base <laughs> yeah. by not having a hawkish point of view. I do right. not see him standing up, uh, withstanding a Republican primary debate with five other guys beating him up about why he doesn't want to bomb some random country like Yemen uh, with with remnants of al-Qaeda in it. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I tend to agree, and that's why I think whether Rand Paul is – reaching out to these guys, these voters, because he thinks he can become president or not, is almost incidental to me. What I want to put an end to is the GOP establishment trying to completely box him out. And that's what they're trying to do. Um, You know, he was at the the Republican Jewish Coalition. uh, Sorry, he was not at the Republican Jewish Coalition confab in, in Vegas. He was conspicuously absent because... Because of his views on Israel and some donors there, according to Time magazine, were like completely bashing Rand Paul. One of them said the best thing that could happen is Ted Cruz and Rand Paul run and steal each other's support. But if not, we'll be ready to take Paul down. And I think that's the that's the wrong attitude for the GOP. Let Rand Paul court these voters. Let him do that. For the benefit of the big tent. Absolutely. So it doesn't make sense to cannibalize Rand Paul, the only guy who is actively, proactively going after millennials, minorities, and women voters, or at least the only guy doing it really well right now. It doesn't make sense to completely um, cut him off because then where do those voters go? Nowhere. What makes more sense is to allow him to court those voters, give him the space that he needs, Give him some some resources. Give him some money. And in the end, as you said, it doesn't matter. He's not going to be nominated. So in the meantime, we get all the voters who are interested in Rand Paul. And through no fault of the rest of the GOP, he doesn't make it. They, they have to go somewhere. Well, maybe he's turned on a few of those voters to the Republican Party. Maybe not, but maybe he's gotten a few hooked. 888-900-3393. You know, I don't know. uh, Give us a call. Tell us what you think about Rand Paul. You know, Essie, the cannibalization will come. I know you're concerned about it happening right now. The cannibalization will come once there are other candidates out there that want to distinguish themselves from Rand Paul. And the big question will be this. Is Rand Paul capable, whether or not he survives as a – as a, the ultimate candidate, of turning all of those young people that he attracts to his views into Republican or even libertarian self-identified voters. Can he do that in a way that his father honestly did not? 
Ron Paul fans remained Ron Paul fans. There was they no didn't translation. Go, right. They they were not a gateway drug. He no, was they, not a gateway drug for them to anything else. They didn't go to John McCain. They didn't go to Mitt Romney. You're absolutely right. But is Rand Paul, as you say, is Rand Paul less kooky? Right. Outlier, more mainstream than Ron Paul. Does he have the ability to actually convert? Remember, yes, Rand Paul is a libertarian. But there's an R next to his name. He's a Republican. So I, 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 if he's got libertarian appeal, I think it can it can turn some other folks to, to our side. I really believe that. I have a serious topic I want to discuss. That's not true. I can tell by the tone of your voice. I want to talk about women's shoes. <sighs> I have some opinions. Ladies. I'm already scared. When we come back from this break, I want you to explain some things to me about women's shoes. And fellas. I want to know if you agree with me or not. 888-900-3393, Kane and Cup, when we come back. Will Kane and Desi Cup. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Eight 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 nine hundred three three nine three. Give us a call. Tweet us at Will Kane and at Se Cup. I have a question. I have a question for you, Se. I'm scared. I have a question for you, ladies and men at home, because I have some opinions about women's shoes. I was on the train the other day. I saw this lady. She was wearing I don't know what they were. They're like flats, I guess, but they had like a butterfly design towards the tip of the foot, towards the toe area. <laughs> And it exposed toe crotch, but no other part of the toe. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. And this is what I started to wonder. I don't understand shoes with the partial toe exposure. Take the peep toe shoe. What are you doing? What are you saying? <laughs> what are you wanting me to think with the peep toe? Are you saying, look here, um, I'm not so modest to show. I, I'm a little modest to show you my entire toe. But here's a little part of a couple digits. And, and that's supposed to do what for me? What is exposing part of a couple of toes on your shoe doing aesthetically? I don't get it. Let me – okay. Let's roll it back a minute. Um, this is – like like you at home, this is the first time hearing of this um, this line of questioning from Will Expose Kane. all the toe or none of the toe. Okay. So that was my first question. Uh, do sandals offend you? Some, definitely. Okay. So maybe you just don't like looking at women's feet, which is fine. I think, no, it's not that. It's not that. In fact, the sandal, my sandal um, objection would lie in the same realm as this. You must go all or nothing. You must commit or not commit. Don't go with the sandal that's kind of one of these multi-strapped sandals with, you know, 60% coverage of the foot. Like half hiking boot, half sandal. Exactly. <laughs> right. Well, those are... Those Don't are buy your sandals at REI. Uh, I think that's good advice. But let me let me fill you in on the peep toe. Let me fill you in in general because <laughs> I think you, you need. <laughs> I think you're you're a little confused in general here. Um, uh, first of all, kudos. Wait, a, wait, I'm sorry. Kudos before you fill me in. Maybe I'm maybe I can. Is it is it utilitarian? Is it a ventilation device? Hundred percent. No. 
Um, now, kudos on knowing what a peep toe shoe is. Thank you. And a flat. Ah, thank you. Very nice. Very nice. Um, no, women are not wearing shoes for you. False. Erroneous. 100% true. I love shoes. I spend way too much money on shoes. I put a lot of time and thought into the shoes that I wear without men in my mind at all for even a second. It is for me and other women. I assume that when I put on a shoe, I am uh, I am speaking the language of shoe to other women. I don't give a crap what you think of my shoes. Oh, listen here, potty mouth. I don't. And women don't dress for men. They dress for other women. I'm not saying that's completely It's not all about false. you, Will. It actually is. <laughs> I, mean, I have to sit back and think about that for a minute. <laughs> I can tell you this from a man's perspective. Shoes make the outfit. We, I am capable of paying attention to shoes more than any other thing. Uh, that, that statement I think you're revealing amended. more about you than men. I'm capable men. of buying shoes for my wife. More than any other thing. I can't look at any other item on the rack and go, yeah, that'll work. That won't work. I need the mannequin, first of all. If it's on the mannequin, I can make sense of it. If it's on the rack, I can't make sense of it. That's why if I see shoes, you can kind of make sense of a shoe, even though it's sitting on the the shelf. But I do believe you need to commit. Coverage or no coverage. The half coverage? You still haven't explained the point of the peep toe of the half coverage. It remains a mystery, and it will remain a mystery. A woman a woman either likes it on her foot or she doesn't. It has nothing to do with you or ventilation, weirdo. More Cane and Cup when we come back. 888-900-3393. See you in a minute. Listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, it's Glenn Beck, and I want to thank you for supporting The Blaze. Because of your phone calls and emails, The Blaze has been added by many TV providers. But we can't stop now. The big media companies like DirecTV, Comcast, and Time Warner aren't listening. They think CNN, MSNBC, and Al Jazeera America are all you need. But we humbly disagree, and we think you do, too. Visit GetTheBlaze.com and let your TV provider know that you want The Blaze in your home. GetTheBlaze.com. Thanks. On the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Kane and Cup. I'm S.E. Cup. And I'm Will Kane. You can tweet us at S.E. Cup, at Will Kane. Uh, we were just talking about Will's really weird, I won't call it a shoe fetish, because it's actually like a shoe-specific, I don't know, investigation? Don't... <laughs> what would you call your weird Opinions. thoughts about how a woman... Should pick out her shoes. Opinions. I just have opinions. And I'm Why not do you alone. have opinions on women's shoes? I just read the stat. 79% of other men also feel like me. I just made that up. That is not true. Not science. Um, you know what? Thank God for Rocky with an eye who follows us on Twitter. Um, she offered a correction. You called it toe crotch. <laughs> and of course, it's actually toe cleavage. Rocky with an eye. First of all. You always catch Will's mistakes. And for that, uh, I am appreciative. 
because there are many and it's too big a job for one person. Mm. So I appreciate you. And I want to let you know, Rocky, with an eye, this is not the first time. It won't be the last time today. That's for sure. I'm not alone, though. Last year, uh, we were we were at the RNC in Tampa. So I guess 2012. We were at the RNC in Tampa. And we were on the radio talking about the RNC, the, the convention. And you saw some facial hair that you thought was called lamb chops. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and in fact, it was mutton chops. You know, you just get your words mixed up sometimes. What are you going to do? Toe crotch. But my opinion, I am not alone in my opinion. Tony, Tony, am I alone on my opinion? You are not alone. I absolutely agree with you. Uh, First of all, yeah, you're right. It is toe cleavage, not toe crotch. So correct. Bad on your part Thank you, Rocky, with an eye. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, women, if you're going to expose the toes, give us a little bit more than just the, you know, the little peep toe. Or close it up. Or close it up. Or close it up. Go all the way. Don't tease us like that. That's right. Thank you, Tony. Bizarre. You guys are bizarre. All right. Coming up a little later in this hour, we're going to um, talk about what it takes to get a few clicks on the internet. When you have an article you think's ready to go viral, you may just not. As he has that broken down to a science. We're going to talk about that a little later. But first, when did we become such wussies with our children? When did our children start wearing helmets and pads and... I don't know, have padded corners and bumpered walls for the enti- their entire life. Is that I your think house? I know the answer, by the way. Is that like your house? No, mm-hmm. I'm proud to say. I'm not like what I'm describing. <laughs> it happened in the 1980s. Hannah Rosen has an interesting article in The Atlantic this month. It's one of the most viewed articles on The Atlantic. It's called The Overprotected Kid. And she talks about when playgrounds started having rubber mats beneath every jungle gym and when All the slides were reduced from about 10 feet in height to 2 feet in height. When everything became so safe and boring. And she talks about the advent of these very new kinds of playgrounds called adventure playgrounds. Where kids go, and I'm telling you something, Essie, these things look like junkyards. They, I read read it, it sounds terrifying. They are wooden pallets strewn about, fire pits. Open bodies of water, lighter fluid, saws, tetanus pools, hepatitis C. I mean, it sounds like a nightmare waiting to happen, but they're actual, they're playgrounds. The one she writes about the land in North Wales. You got to go online and check this out because it it was like shuddering. These are a rebellion against the playground I described earlier. This movement from the early 1980s to pad every corner, to reduce the height of every slide. She talks about these adventure playgrounds reintroduce the concept of dangerous risk, which is not something to be entirely avoided. That children learning to negotiate dangerous risk actually creates self-confidence and courage. And what happened was in the late 1970s, early 1980s, there began to be a rash of lawsuits. A couple kids died in some freak accidents, fell off a high slide, fell between a gap in the stairs on one of these jungle gyms, hit an asphalt pavement with their head. Uh, freak accidents. Some of them died. A motorcycle wreck where a motorcycle crashes into a playground. Now every playground has to be fenced off. And interestingly, here we are 30 or 40 years later with these very safe playgrounds, and our incidents of injury have not gone down. An acknowledgement, actually, that what was happening 30 or 40 years ago were freak accidents, right. not epidemics. Well, that's usually how we do things. We respond to freak accidents, but with 
over-legislating, over-regulating. We over-respond. But <clears throat> I can see it now. I take my nieces and nephews to, to playgrounds, and there's just no room for creativity there. It's like, here's a slide. You slide down it, feet first. This is a swing. You swing on it. Um, there's no room for a kid to sort of make up their own their own uh, playground, their own atmosphere, their own environment, like like there seems to be with these new adventure playgrounds. Well, these adventure playgrounds, another key quality is there's no adults present. There is right. one supervisor who's kind of a park ranger of this little area who sits back and is very non-involved, uninvolved, but parents are not hovering at these playgrounds. Yeah. And it's not just therefore about creativity, it's about independence. In this article, she points out that in, in – uh, in the 1970s, 80% of third graders walked to school alone. By the 1990s, that had dropped to 9%. Now, that was in the UK. But a similar movement took place here in the United States because in the late 1970s is when Eton Pates here in New York City went yeah. missing because he walked a few blocks from his home in New York City to the bus stop. Mm-hmm. And he was never found. To this day, it remains a mystery what happened to Eton Pates. But that's when kids' faces started showing up on milk cartons. And Adam Walsh. And, yeah, then you had this advent of the missing kid phenomenon, and the world got very scary. And now, because of that, because we have tried to exorcise danger from our children's lives, parents are hovering, ever-present, always 20 feet away from their children. And you can never find that independence. You can never, as a child, negotiate a relationship with another child without a parent coming in going, now, now, Johnny, we must learn how to share and play nice. Well, yeah, and you can't, uh, she also writes about facing risks and that when a child faces a risk, that builds courage. And, I mean, I remember when I was was young, maybe six or seven, I'd go out with my, uh, my brothers out into the woods behind our house, and we saw all kinds of scary things. Um, we played in this small, like, runoff stream and caught tadpoles. I later found out that was sewage. It was a sewer. <laughs> we went into the woods and, like, quote-unquote, discovered ancient artifacts that we couldn't explain. What I now know were, like, beer cans and a car battery. But I thought they were, like, they must be 100 years old. John wants me to ask you something. I don't know why he doesn't just talk into his mic. He said, ask her if she ever found a dead body. No dead bodies. <laughs> But we did like we would we would we would come up upon remnants of a bonfire, which we thought were like from from early explorers, and they were really just from like the drunks in town the night before. <laughs> but are we but you made out those there, stories one hundred percent going out there on my own. I mean, with my my brothers who were my age, was this creative adventure? No parent was there to tell me don't touch that, or that's just a beer can, or that's sewage water. I had to conquer these things. Myself and learn um, how far I was willing to go into the woods, how scared I'd get, how far from home I'd get. That was character building. I'll tell you today, it is liberating and socially hilarious because I have, as you know, two children. I go to the playgrounds here in New York City almost like a religious ritual. You're there every weekend morning. My wife is there almost every day of the week. And to watch this hovering parent hmm. always teaching lessons, more for the other parents around them than for their actual children. Now, let's, let's share. Let's play nice. And it's always a show, actually, for the oh. other parents. But to not intervene when your child is actually acting a little bit inappropriately yeah. or when your child is a recipient of it. Either way. And to have your response be, uh, they'll work it out. I'll let them work it out. It's uh, People pull hair out. Shake it. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. What do you mean they'll work it out? Somebody may. Step in. There may be a brawl. Step in here.
You know, it says uh, in this article that what this actually they found creates is increased incidences of depression, narcissism, increased use of medication. It's the millennial generation that grew up in this environment. And I ask you, you know, what kind of uh, adult does this eventually foster? What kind of adult does this create? And I think I think I think I know the answer. It's the hipster. Huh. It's someone generally incapable of communicating or negotiating with their social circumstances around them who's never encountered any form of danger or risk outside of the outfit they put on that morning, which was intended to communicate, I'm rough and tumble in a very clearly inauthentic way. Yes, yes. I think that's probably true. I think that's probably true. So we know where all of Brooklyn came from. We know where your child is headed, too. (laughs) Let them get their hands dirty. Let them get hurt. A few scrapes and bruises. Let them play in sewage water. All right. 888-900-3393, at Will Kane at SE Cup. When we come back, Essie's going to teach us how you create a viral article, the science of clickbait. That on Kane and Cup when we come back. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Essie Cup return. Hey, it's Kane and Cup. I'm Essie Cup. And I'm Will Kane. Uh, let me ask you a question, Will Kane. And this is, this is a serious question. If you saw a link that said, 10 celebrities with ugly spouses, is that interesting to you? Would you click on that? Yes. <laughs> Why? Because <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> Because you want to know yeah. who are these celebrities with ugly spouses. Do you have the answer for us? Oh, yeah. I can pull that up. That's an actual link. It was at the bottom of my column in the Daily News. I was, as I do, I, you know, my column comes out on Wednesday. I send it around, and I'm at the bottom, and I see this clickbait. And clickbait is meant, you know, to get you onto other pages and get you into the site. One of them was 10 celebrities with ugly spouses. Another was 10 megastars who are secretly horrible people. Yes. <laughs> like, I don't even need to know by whose definition, who's judging this, <laughs> what are the standards. I'm clicking on that link. <laughs> yes. Tell me who are horrible people. Uh, another one was 10 celebrities that have revoked their Scientology. Yes. Also interesting. I want to know. Of course you do. Now, there's a science to this, and obviously in the case in the cases that I just mentioned, there's a common denominator there. Ten. Celebrities. <laughs> Ten. Celebrities. So celebrities are good clickbait, and you know that because you can even go to a hard news site and you will see clickbait um, on some celebrity at the beach. And it's just a picture of a hot celebrity, and of course you're going to click on it. Or... Um, you know, some celebrity in jail. You you want to know why. You want to know that story. Well, I did a little research because I was interested. Like, what is this story about 10 
stars who are secretly horrible people doing at the bottom of my column on Rand Paul. <coughs> what is like, what's the science there? And it turns out there is science. Okay. It exists. I found it at the end of the internet. Uh, Popular Science wrote a story last year about a University of Bristol study that determined some of the sort of big yeses and nos of clickbait. Big no number one for clickbait, no one clicks on finance. So if you have a story and you want people to read it, don't put anything about finance in the in the title. No one's going to click on that. Uh, clickbait, big yes. Mm-hmm. Use sentimentally charged language. Now that means um, women, mm-hmm. love, romance, sex, those kinds of alluring words are big. I get it. Entertainment and crime, big. Uh, let me tell you some of the top words in clickbait that have been effective. Girl, sex, porn, pregnant, dead. <laughs> These are your top? <laughs> well, they're not mine, but in terms of science, science, uh, those are some of the top clickable words. So just put that in. And also like a picture of a cat. That helps too. And your gold. Yes, and this is the these are some of the worst, least popular clickbait words. Government, dollar, man, Obama, coal. Wow, that's actually really <laughs> fascinating. Right? By the way, coal? Coal. Random. Coal. Um Yeah, that's fascinating in in that there are a lot of articles um <laughs> produced. That fit exactly those niches, right? Uh, political articles, criticism of government, finance, that what you're telling me is if you just want an article that gets attention, avoid those subjects. Well, yeah, I think that really goes to some of our arrogance in this business, in the business of politics, that we think everyone I- wants to read about the government and politics and Obama and our opinions on coal and finance. <laughs> and they don't. They don't. Right. I mean, they don't want to click on it. I mean, maybe they read about it because they're naturally interested, but in for like the internet writ large, they want to know 10 celebrities who are secretly horrible people. Well, I'll tell you this. It's also, um, as you're breaking this down to a science, I loved science. every one of those topics you introduced, 10 celebrities who are secretly horrible people, 10 celebrities with ugly spouses. I click. But if you, you present click. it at the bottom of an article... In those little square boxes, and this yeah. may have been how it was presented on your daily, daily yeah, news article. Exactly. I already know that's clickbait. I'm staying away from it. It's probably for whatever reason. No, been sometimes unworthy in my mind. I'm not doing it. No, sometimes I can't help myself. Um, by the way, do you want to know who the ten mega stars are that are secretly horrible people? I do. Jimmy Page. I told you, there's no rhyme or reason. I don't know who is making this list. I don't care. Right. I'm clicking on it. Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin, apparently a horrible person. Eric Clapton, Vince Neil, Sean Penn, that one we already knew, uh, Rick James. A lot of musicians. Johnny Cash, may he rest. Johnny Cash. Dr. Dre. Oh, oh, this is a really good one. And Charles Dickens. <laughs> <laughs> 
how many lists are Dr. Dre and Charles Dickens right next to each other on? <laughs> Amazing. See, I don't even care how they came up with this stupid list. It makes no sense. Right. I am clicking on it. You know, in our last uh, segment, we talked about children negotiating relationships, encountering danger, risk, figuring out how to live with one another, their lack of independence. Uh, Joe in Long Island has a story to tell us on that exact subject. Hey, guys. Great show. Thanks, Thanks. Joe. You know, you were talking about the kids and how uh, everyone tries to insulate the children. And, you know, my wife and I have always raised the kids that they've got to take their scrapes and knees and bumps and falls. Back when my son was nine, he was at the summer rec program. And he comes to me one day, and there had been this one or two kids were picking on this one little kid, giving him a really hard time. My son went and complained to one of the administrators at the camp, and the counselors, you know, looked the other way and some mm. nonsense. Oh, he's got to learn to handle it himself, the whole deal. My son comes to me and tells me, and we had a little chat, and coincidentally, next to the next day, my son and three other boys on the youth travel baseball team coincidentally just happened to have a little run-in with the two bullies in the cafeteria. And at the end of the run-in, the bullies were covered with food and crying and in a heap on the floor, and I got the call from the administrator to come down. So I come down, and the four kids, including my son, are at the principal's office. I give each kid a $20 bill. I took them out for ice cream afterwards. <laughs> I said, you guys did the right thing. You, you went to the system. The system didn't help. And you exercised a little initiative and prevented a bully from picking on people. And what happened with the bully oh. situation going forward? When I gave the kids this money, this guy screamed. It was that typical <laughs> liberal scream of disbelief, like, you can't do that. Nothing happened. We didn't hear from the kid's parents. The bullies left the little kid alone. There it is. And, you know, end of the problem. All and right, I've Joe. always taught them, and in fact, my younger daughter, my younger daughter plays Division One soccer in college. She's on a scholarship. She and the girls on her team would always be the ones who would include the kid who didn't have a place to sit, you know, walks into the cafeteria, comes sit with us, that kind of deal. Always taught them to stand up for themselves and stand up for others. Yep, yeah, there you go, important. Joe. We've got to leave it there. Thanks for the call, Joe. Really appreciate it. When we come back on Canaan Cup, it's best in life if you are a vegetarian and run a lot, right? That's what no, we're taught. No, Maybe wrong. Not. 888-900-3393, Canaan Cup, when we come back. This is Kane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back. I'm Will Kane. I'm Essie Cup. You can tweet us at Will Kane and at Essie Cup. Call us at 888-900-3393. I don't know how we negotiate all of the information right now about the best way to stay healthy. Now, look, I, I don't dismiss, you know, uh, wanting to be in good shape, wanting to feel good and energetic and honestly uh, look good. You know, you, these things matter in life. Toklevich, you're into it. I'm into it. But the, all the information out there right now, I, I don't know how you would negotiate it. Let me just bring you up to speed on a few articles and research studies out this week. 
on the best way to live a long and healthy life. First of all, from a cliched, um, you know, almost to the point of common sense um, standard these days, you would think that vegetarianism is the path to a longer life, a longer, healthier life. In fact, on March 4th, I saw a study that said meat eaters this. Meat eaters, those who have uh, high-protein diets, have a much higher mortality rate in middle age. They are 75% more likely to die of anything, any health causes, I would assume, outside of accidental causes, Then someone who doesn't have a high-protein diet. Now, high-protein would be defined as taking in 20% of your daily calories through protein. Mm -hmm. That is what I have been reading, it seems, for quite some time now. But do you mean red meat? Because fish is protein, and that's got to be healthier. So the study started with red meat, have now evolved into any sort of high-protein diet. You're taking any kind of protein in on a, um, what would they call it, you know, egregious level. Over 20% of your daily calories. Okay. Then that would be bad. But then this study now, this study now out, um, out of Austria, that vegetarianism oh, Austria. is bad. Well, the Austrians, I mean. Freud, I buy it. Health, MDs, Austria. Legit. That accent? Yep. I'm listening. Me too. If you are a vegetarian, you generally have poor health quality, poor quality of life, and, and a greater need for health care. I could, I could have told you that. That you have poorer quality of life if you're a vegetarian. That one seems intuitive. I didn't need (laughs) science to tell me that. Have you met a vegetarian? They don't look happy or healthy. (laughs) But, I mean, this has to come as a surprise to you, right? Higher incidence of cancer, allergies, and heart attacks from people who are vegetarians. Actually, allergies and immune system, that makes sense to me, too. I mean, you need to immunize against bacteria and viruses, and those are found in meat, if you're only eating vegetables, I don't, I don't understand how you get inoculated against that stuff. High-protein diets are bad for you. Vegetarianism is bad for you. What, what, what are we supposed to do here? No, yeah, I know. Moderation. That's the answer, by the way. You're also, I think, maybe also just kind of supposed to um, eat what you like. In moderation. But broccoli, 10 years ago, gave you cancer. Eggs became the new thing you can't eat until they became the thing that you have to eat. I mean, it's just, it's preposterous. The science keeps changing. You can't wrap your head around it, and you can't count on anything. Now, of course, we also know that exercise is absolutely key to a long and healthy life. Science. Science. Except that seems to be evolving as well. This, a new study out suggesting that high-mileage runners have shorter lifespans to the equivalent of those that do not exercise at all. Oh, that's good news. This versus moderate runners. Moderate runners. Let me just ask, where is this study out of? Why would you ask me the one question I forgot to write down? (laughs) It's real, though. (laughs) I believe you. (laughs) The sweet spot, they suggest, is running for about two and a half hours a week over three sessions. But if you are a high-mileage runner, it's not good for you, and they don't know why. They say it's not because high-mileage runners are taking increased medications or painkillers, but simply the wear and tear of pounding the pavement that much, no bueno. Have you seen the way these people look after a marathon? They literally like look like they're dying before my eyes. I'm not surprised. You can't run 26 miles and tell me that you're in good, you're in better shape now than you were before you started that run. There is no way. Well, it depends on where you started that run. Um, so moderation seems to be the key, by the way, whether or not you're eating or exercising, except now I give you this as well, and this one should strike you. As no surprise, poor sleep ages your mind mm-hmm. by as much as five years. 
If you go as long as something like three to four years where you keep a broken sleep pattern, um, you reduce your memory and concentration by up to 50%, which is about the equivalent of aging yourself five years, which is, by the way, fascinating. You're losing 50% every five years. That's terrifying. Yeah. Um, You rid your body of toxins during sleep. Now, the lesson here, by the way, is not that you need a ton of quantity of sleep. You don't need to sleep for 12 hours. It's quality, uninterrupted sleep that you can get. That is necessary for you to be smart. Well, that's the one thing I can't do anything about. I can, I can, I'm in control of my diet and my exercise. I tell you, I don't sleep great, both in quantity or quality. And I know that that's bad for me. I know, you know, getting good sleep is good for your diet. It's good for your overall health. It's good for your mental focus and acuity and apparently good for a long lifespan. I can't do anything about it. Yeah, they suggested, by the way, that uh, poor sleep is not only just bad for your memory and concentration ability, but it's connected to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's as I be- well. I believe it. I believe it. Uh, but I don't know what to I don't take I don't take drugs or prescription medication, so I don't know what to do to get better sleep. I mean, what do you do? Wake up in the middle of the night? I wake up every hour, and like I, I never get more than an hour at a time. That's miserable. Yeah, it's not fun. I mean, it's it's not fun. I sleep for about six hours a night, maybe seven if I'm lucky. But I'm up every hour, not like out of bed up, but like awake. Tossing, I just wake turning. up. Have you yeah. got you need? Um, I, I'd suggest everybody at home get one of these apps. It's it's fascinating. Or the uh, wristband that you can wear that monitors your sleep, that shows your sleep patterns and how often they're interrupted. Because simply tossing and turning and those moments, those quick little moments yeah. of waking up are disturbing the quality of your sleep. And as you said, yeah. it's not just about getting out of bed and walking to the kitchen or walking to the bathroom. It's those quick little wake-ups all throughout the night that are disturbing your sleep cycle. And these apps will measure um, yeah. How often that's happening by how but much? What you do need. I do about? I mean, I know that it's the interruption of that REM sleep that is the problem. I don't know what to do about it. I actually went to school uh, with a psychologist named Jim Moss. He was a professor while I was a student, and he's one of the world's most preeminent sleep psychologists. And he wrote a book and talked to me a lot about uh, how to get good sleep. I know what to do. You need a cool, dark room. You need a routine and a schedule where you go to sleep the same time every night. Wake up the same time every morning. Don't watch TV in bed. Don't use no noise. lights like apps, like uh, iPads and phones in your bed. That's right. Um, you know, certain mattresses can help. I have a Tempur-Pedic. I know all the things to do. I can't go to sleep the same time every night. I can't wake up the same time every morning. With our schedules, I just can't. I can't commit. I cannot commit to good sleep. I'm sorry. <laughs> Exercise in moderation, eat in moderation, get lots of sleep. That's the lesson, I guess, from the latest studies. Good stuff. Hey, has um, being opposed to gay marriage become the equivalent of being a supporter of the KKK, being a neo-Nazi? That might be the case as we look at a new story out of Silicon Valley. When we come back on Canaan Cup, 888-900-3393. You're listening to Kane and Cup. On the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Kane and Cop on the Blaze Radio Network. The mob has spoken, and it could be that the gay 
advocacy movement has shot itself in the foot. Brendan Eich, the inventor of JavaScript, the newly appointed CEO of Mozilla, which is the company behind the web browser Firefox, which many people use. I'm a user of Firefox. Yeah, me too. Came under fire this past week because it surfaced that a couple years ago, Ike donated $1,000 to the Prop 8 um, movement in California. Prop 8 was the law in California that defined marriage as strictly that between a man and a woman. It specifically left out, obviously, any form of gay marriage as being sanctioned, legalized, recognized in the state of California. Now, So be- he was supporting a ban on gay marriage. He was supporting a ban on gay marriage. Now, because he did that, a website called OKCupid began, and then a movement took off that basically called for the ouster of Brendan Eich, that he was not fit, despite whatever technical acumen or expertise he may have had, no matter how much leadership or entrepreneurial history he had in his past, he was not fit to lead Mozilla because of this political point of view he held. Ike resigned at the end of this past week under public pressure. Yeah, it was forced to, essentially. He resigned. Now, I think this is a, an interesting issue to explore the nuance on. Now, Essie and I, both of us, have supported the gay marriage movement for quite some time. Correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I believe we're both on the same position here on this issue. Um, and that is that you can't arrive at a position where your debate opponent's point of view is deemed so unworthy to be heard. It is, a rec- it is an admission of the weakness of your own argument. Now, earlier this week, I had many make the argument, you know, you can't bully. I'm tired of the bullying, the bullying of someone else's point of view out of the marketplace. But I can't completely adopt that point of view, SE, because I think if we play the analogy game, we can find points of view that we would suggest, all right, if there is a public pressure movement to push that person out, I wouldn't be against it. For example... If Google hired a member of the KKK, mm-hmm. if um, FedEx decided that a neo-Nazi was going to be its next leader, I would neither be surprised nor would be upset about a movement to expose that about the incoming CEO and suggest he might not be the right leader. In other words, we can find positions where certainly we would justify what happened to Brenda Nike. Yeah, but opposing gay marriage is not akin to either of those. And that's the point. Yeah. And and this this bothers me on a number of levels. I, I, you know, as as you told our listeners, we're we're on a side of this. We we support gay marriage. However, I am one hundred percent team Brendan Ike in this for a number of reasons. Um, one, this is not the way. If you if you're part of the gay rights movement, this is not the way to change hearts and minds by bullying and silencing. This is not the way you move a cultural and social moment forward. This is a way to call attention to your own exclusivity, your own intolerance, and your own fear of having the actual argument and debate, as you said. Well, and as you said, it it delegitimizes your opponent in a debate. It's an attempt to delegitimize an opponent in your debate and to suggest that there is no legitimate opposition to gay marriage. Right. And even though you and I both support gay marriage, I recognize that my debate opponent— in this, on this issue, 
has some legitimate points to be made. Absolutely. Ultimately, ultimately I believe that it's a, it, it falls on the losing side of the argument. Right. That when you weigh the, the issue on, and balance the pros and cons, it should fall in favor of supporting gay marriage. But I do recognize that my opponent in this has some legitimate arguments. Well, not that's tradition, thousands of years of human tradition, religious point of view. I recognize legitimacy that ultimately I would rebut and I think win, but I don't think that that may, means they're a bigot. A pariah. And that's how he's been treated, like a pariah. Now, Jonathan V. Last at, at Weekly Standard made a really interesting point. He said, well, what if OK Cupid had never found out that Brandon Ike sent $1,000 in to support Prop 8? What if they only found out that he voted for it? That's arguably more influential, a vote for Prop 8, than a drop-in-the-bucket $1,000 donation. Would would they have the same right? Would Mozilla take the same position that because he voted for something and exercised his democratic right, he was no longer fit to represent their company? If that's the case, we must reintroduce as evidence the fact that President Obama for several years <laughs> right. well, shared that the irony. position of Brendan Ike. There is that irony as well, that this needle has moved incredibly fast. And that the new enemies were enemies just like a year or two ago. A year or two ago. As now, you said, this movement has moved incredibly fast. By the way, I want to introduce this. This is somewhat fascinating as well. You know, those that advocate for um, laws, public accommodation laws, they're called. In other words, that you as a private business are not allowed to discriminate. This is what we encountered in Arizona a few weeks ago where it said that any business from a religious point of view couldn't deny service to, um, to, to someone because of their homosexuality. The rebuttal from any on our side is you don't need to pass laws. Culture ferrets out yeah. that which we should accept and that, that which, which we should right. not. Absolutely. Is this not an example of that? If you believe that acceptance of homosexuality is where we must get, and the rebuttal that someone gives you is, well, culture will get us there. You yeah. don't need to have public pressure or laws. Actually, this is an example of public pressure working. Mm. So it undercuts the idea that you need laws to force right. this. Well, yeah, I mean, I would have preferred support this particular. No, I would have preferred a a free market to work in this case where um, Brendan Ike is it it, it comes out that Brendan Ike um, supported Prop 8, a ban on gay marriage. And maybe people decided on their own. Well, I'm not going to use Mozilla. Maybe plenty of people decided they're still okay with that, though. That's a free market. What I did find interesting, Andrew Sullivan, who is a noted gay rights activist, gay himself and sort of conservative. He wrote this. He said, if this is the gay rights movement today, hounding our opponents with a fanaticism more like the religious right than anyone else, then count me out. If we are about intimidating the free speech of others, we are no better than the anti-gay bullies who came before us. I think he's absolutely 100% right. Yeah, I think um, there's some long, hard staring in the mirror that those in the gay rights advocacy movement need to. Uh, well, this just isn't the way to do, to do it. Issue. It's not the way to do it. When we come back, I want to ask a question. Is faith a virtue? Any kind of faith, Mm. no matter where applied, is faith a virtue over atheism? Cane and Cup, 888-900-3393. You're listening to Kane and Cobb. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.
Welcome back to Kane and Cup. I'm Will Kane. I'm Essie Cup. I'm genuinely curious about something. I want you to help me out through this. I want people to explain to me this point of view if they have it or if they disagree with it. 888-900-3393. I have a question, first of all, specifically for our Christian listeners. Would you vote for, for President of the United States more readily, an atheist candidate for President of the United States or a Muslim candidate for President of the United States? Now, I want to turn that same question now to our Muslim listeners. Would you more readily vote for President of the United States, an atheist candidate, or a Jewish candidate for President of the United States? The point you're making is, which is least palatable? A person of an opposing faith or no faith at all, correct? Okay. Exactly. Just this week, in Saudi Arabia, King Abdullah issued a royal decree that equated atheism with terrorism. And not abstractly, directly. He said terrorism, in one of its forms, is calling for atheist thought in any form. That is pretty far out there. I, uh, it got me thinking when I heard that. This complete, I don't know, intolerance, um, opposition to atheism, that, this, that, that it, above all, is the greatest of evils. And it made me think, actually, back to this point in the Republican primaries in 2012 when Newt Gingrich was on the stage. And he was asked something akin to about Mitt Romney's Mormonism Mm. and what he thought of it. And this is what he had to say. How can you have judgment if you have no faith? And how can I trust you with power if you don't pray? (laughs) Who you pray to, how you pray, how you come close to God is between you and God. Who you pray to, how you pray, is your own personal relationship. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to public life, Gingrich is suggesting all you have to have is faith. Of any kind. Of any kind. And I'm unfamiliar. I don't disagree. Really? Yeah. Well, I am unfamiliar with any religious doctrine that says as long as you have faith, that's a good thing. Any kind of faith, no matter what kind of faith, as long as you have that. That's a step in the right direction. I'm un- unfamiliar no, with a religious tradition that says we're tolerant of all faiths, but we're intolerant of no faith. Well, that, that doesn't exist. I mean, institutional religions of all kinds require intolerance. They require you to say that my faith, my version, is right and yours is wrong. Now, some would argue that certain faiths require that you do that violently, Others would suggest you do that peaceably. But there is no religion that allows you, no institutional religion. There may be some touchy-feely New Age religions, but there's no institutional religion that allows you to say, my right is, is my, my way is right, but so is yours. Right. And, no. and actually, I think that happy talk, Essie, is what I'm getting to. It seems that we have evolved into this place of happy talk where as long as you have faith, that's mm-hmm. a virtue. And the only thing that we can really not tolerate in society is a lack of faith. Mm. And I don't see any intellectual or religiously motivated doctrine that underpins that thought other than modern day happy talk. Yeah. Well, let me I have two two points on this. One is 
And I'm, I'm very curious to hear what our listeners have to say about this. 888-900-3393. I've got two thoughts on this. One, there was a movement. I wrote about this in a book. There was a movement when President Obama first came into office to equate atheism with faith in every single mention of, of faith that he had publicly. So he'd say all Americans across Christians, Muslims, Jews, and atheists as if they are somehow similar. And as an atheist, in case some of our listeners aren't aware, I am an atheist. Um, to equate atheism with faith as if they are institutionally or dogmatically or practically similar is a total misapplication and misunderstanding of the way faith works. I would agree with that. Atheism is marked by a lack of uh, moral divinity. That doesn't mean that atheists aren't moral people. I consider myself a moral person. But you don't know what creates my moral uh, criteria for life. If I tell you I'm Christian, you have a pretty good idea of what my moral doctrine is. I might not live up to it. I might not practice it well, but you at least know in theory what I aspire to be. You don't know as an atheist what my morality looks like. I would have to tell you that. So there is no equating. Atheism is completely different from all other kinds of faith. Agreed. Now, on the other side... But it does not, by the way, mean that all other kinds of faith are equal to each other. No, they're not. Of course they're not. There are differences within all of those faiths. Let me tell you where I agree with Newt Gingrich. When he says, how can I trust you with power if you don't pray? This makes complete and total sense to me. As an atheist, I've said before, and people sort of look at me quixotically, um, I I could never vote for an atheist president. Not because I don't think that that's a moral person, not because I think that that person is any less... um, good than someone of faith, but because I don't trust you with power. If you don't have a check and balance every night when you go to bed, what is to stop you from thinking that you yourself are the most important, powerful, influential um, beacon of, of power if you don't have something higher outside of yourself, stopping you? What would stop you from thinking that this, for, from putting all of that power in the state? So what you're suggesting is that atheism more readily lends itself to megalomania, egomania, than a, any well, form yeah. of faith. yeah, have you met Bill Maher? Any form of faith. Well, you introduced Bill Maher as evidence, and I would suggest to you that it wouldn't be take me very long to look across the scope of history to rebut your premise. That some sure. of history's greatest megalomaniacs have, in fact, professed some form of religious faith. Sure. So what I would suggest is, you're making an argument for humility. You're making an argument that yes. a leader who sees a higher power than himself, no matter if that power is right or wrong, yes. no matter if that faith is right or wrong, is inherently a virtue because he has made himself subservient to something else. And what I would suggest to you is yes. in theory you might be right, and in history it doesn't suggest you are. You're probably right, but let me put it another way. People like Bill and I, and and Bill and I are on very opposite sides of the atheist spectrum. He is what I would call a militant atheist. I don't believe in God, but I'm not mad at God. In fact, I write a lot in defense of, of Christian America and people of faith. But the difference is, Bill is someone who says 95% of the world 
is crazy. In fact, the way he puts it, they have a neurological disorder. I don't I don't see it that way. I don't see my 5% of the world is right and the rest of the world is crazy. I get the need for religion. I wrote a a a, a master's thesis um uh doctorate on on why religion is good and why it exists. Why belief and worship and devotion are good things. I just don't happen to have it. So I think someone, if you think of an atheist as someone like Bill Maher, um, who literally thinks that the rest of the world, he is among 5% of people who know the real story. I don't think that's a presidential candidate. Yeah, but look, I think you're picking not a straw man, but a weak man as your example of someone to beat in this debate. And as one of our Twitter followers just suggests, um, if if I am choosing from a candidate who has a mindset similar to Penn Jillette, I pick the atheist hands down. So you picked Bill Maher. One of our Twitter followers picks Penn Jillette as his as his proxy for an example of that mindset. But that's actually not the debate I'm having. Mm. In the end, the debate I want to know is this. Is faith, regardless of its form, a virtue over a lack of faith? Have we come to the point where we should be tolerant of all religions but intolerant of a lack of religion? But virtue in itself is a religiously loaded... What are you asking? What what would be virtuous uh, as as an as an atheist? What would no what would virtue look like in the realm of no faith? Well, what do you mean by that? Surely you don't mean that virtue can't exist without religion. No, I of course it can, but as I said, me telling you I'm an atheist does not tell you anything about think, my virtues. I think that's instructive. In other words, that reveals information to the potential voter. That helps us understand who the candidate is, but it is not definitive. It does not tell you I should vote for this person because he has faith. And that's where we have arrived. That is my point. Yes, I think you should judge someone based upon their moral code, wherever that derives from. Yeah. But I think we have also arrived at a point, and it was in that Gingrich moment. And it's somewhat revealed in that Saudi law Mm. that as long as you have religion, by the way, the Saudis aren't. They are not proponents of this. It's one specific religion they would suggest you must have. But as long as you have religion— You are qualified. If you do not, you are unqualified. And I just don't even think religion supports that point of view. It seems Mm. to be a point of view that has developed over the last, I would suggest, 20 years? Mm -hmm. That has no logical or religious underpinnings. Now, I could be wrong, and that's why I did begin this segment out of a genuine sense of curiosity. Tell me why I'm wrong. We already have several callers who are lined Mm. up and people on Twitter, so let's do this. Let's take a break. I want to hear from some of our viewers if yeah, I am too. wrong and why I might be wrong on Kane and Cup, 888-900-3393 when we come back. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. And Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. We're discussing whether or not having faith, faith of any form, is a virtue over having a lack of faith. Whether being an adherent to any religion is a more qualifying position for leadership, for President of the United States, than having no religion at all. Yeah, being a believer versus a non believer. 888 Mike in Kentucky. Mike, tell us what you think. Hey guys. 
Hey, guys, great show. Hey, I would argue that uh, faith and religion are two separate things. Religion is a creation by man that is designed to basically draw people to it and create a set of rules and confinements so that people can feel comfortable and safe in that, and that faith is actually the belief that uh, a cre your creator, your higher being, is uh, your Lord. I mean, Christianity is the belief that Christ is the Son of God, and he's your savior. But Mike, all does that blur all the lines then between the differing religions of the world? By you taking this to faith is the higher value than the, the worldly form of faith, which is religion, are you also saying then that all those religions would be of equal value? Well, Paul addressed it in the, in the scriptures when he wrote the letters to the churches and said that, he, that they were missing the point. They were using their, their flesh and creating rules and regulations to be able to separate themselves from the body of Christ, which was the church. And Christ brought the kingdom of God to earth, and he said his kingdom wasn't of this world, and religion is the humanistic interpretation of that. Therefore, it's in essence a prison that's designed to pull you away from the kingdom of God. So let me ask you this, Mike, real quick. So when I asked my initial question, you, would you more readily vote for a person who follows a religion different than yours, which you said you're a Christian, so a Muslim or Jew, would you more readily vote for someone who has a faith that's different than yours than a non-believer? I would more readily vote on that on the, on those on that basis. I would more readily vote for someone who has faith in something as opposed to faith in nothing. All right, Mike. Thanks for the call. Let's go to Jonathan I'm in with Tennessee. Mike. Yeah, you are. Yeah, Jonathan in Tennessee. Hi, can you hear me? We can. Yeah. Okay, so, sorry, there was a cut in. Uh, hi, guys. Uh, I just wanted to say that I, I really congratulate you on the show. Thanks. I'm a young person, and I actually wake up pretty early so that I can hear it. Oh, um, that's awesome. Thanks. I, I, had a, I had a quick couple points. Um, I, I just I, I hope that I'm right, but I think that in uh, today's society that people have started to get to a point where, there, yes, there are the side that really think anyone who believes in religion is you know a bigot or they're stupid or they don't understand things but there's the other side where you start to realize when you research other religions that there's a lot more similarities than necessarily differences and i think that if a candidate were to be muslim or they were to be buddhist or anything as long as they demonstrated that they have a reasonable rationale and that they truly believed and that they were a constitutional person and they had you know values and principles over necessarily the faith that people could be drawn to them. And I think that works with atheists as well. I think if an atheist came up, you know, he might have a hard time with the Christian base, but if he expressed that despite my lack of this, I have faith in humanity, I have faith in the some a, a yeah. set of small values, I think that's that's more valuable in today's political debate. People look for a true like a true person displaying honesty, not some character that they think would work for everybody. Well, yeah, and Jonathan, I think I think you're right on both counts. On on the first count, I mean, you know, this argument that the 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 major religions have a lot in common is inarguable. If you read the New Testament, um you know, you have an idea that Judaism, Christianity, and uh Islam all come from the same like the same three people. They are all started in the same place. And they branch out and they form uh, like uh, around similar times and with similar um, similar goals, similar stories. So and in a similar part of the world. 
So that's that's um, inarguable. That's just fact. However, um, people like to point out the differences a lot more. But on the second point, uh, that even an atheist could prove that he or she were moral, smart, rational. I mean, I have that conversation all the time because, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll suggest that I believe in the Ten Commandments just as much as any God-fearing Christian does. I also think murder is wrong. I also don't think stealing is right. I mean, these are things that I think are universal moralities. And I think if we focused on the areas where we all we all agree our, our common values, our human values, our morality, that we could probably have these conversations, these very tough conversations about religion and morality in more interesting ways. Jonathan, let me put my original question to you as well then. So with that point of view you've given us, would you more readily vote for a person of faith, although they don't have your faith, than a non-believer? Uh, I, I think that I'm going to be kind of wishy-washy and just say that if, if for any you know, it doesn't matter the religion for me. I'm a Christian, but for me, as long as they demonstrate that they will be true and honest, even if they don't have faith, that's who I'm going to go to. Okay. Uh, it could be Muslim or anyone. That's fair. Right. Thanks, Thanks, Jonathan. Jonathan. Let's go to Eric in Wisconsin. Hey today. Hi. Um, I'm actually a big fan of the show. It's sounding great, guys. Thank Thanks. you. Um, I just want to make a couple points. that um, I actually work in deliverance ministry, so um, as a Christian, I would more readily vote for an atheist over a Muslim just because an atheist, um, in the Western world, isn't doesn't take as violent a stand against faith. Oh, I would have to disagree with you there, my friend. I have sat across from some incredibly militant atheists who make Christians enemy number one. Oh, absolutely. And I was actually my other point is is that in Western world, as far as the United States has gone, the perceived enemy of faith has been atheism, such as freedom from. Um, Freedom from Religion Foundation and organization, organizations like that. Yeah. So unfortunately, it's, they've made themselves a perceived enemy of faith. So even though that may be the minority of atheists, it's a very loud minority. Yeah. No, I think it's yeah. it's 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 it's, a, it's an interesting point, and we thank you for your call. Um, well, I think this was a really good question and an interesting one, and not an easy one to answer. No, it's not easy. I I, I want to share a tweet from. Uh... Joseph Blaze, who said, it's moral relativism to think that faiths are equal. So tolerance of another faith that is not yours is technically impossible. No, it's, it, it is not possible. It is not possible. Um, I did a little research, and I just want to put this to you. I, I found that there are 13 countries where atheism is punishable by death. Wow. Uh, I guess, not surprisingly, they're all Muslim. Two that really surprised me, Malaysia. We've all been talking about this plain so malaysia's on our brain malaysia can't be an atheist the maldives mm-hmm. i have a lot of friends we considered honeymooning in the maldives because it's a real like resort property that could have turned out bad that would not have been good <laughs> but another surprising thing um there are six western countries where blasphemy laws allow for jail sentences of up to three years on charges of offending a religion of believers those are austria wow. denmark wow germany Greece, Hungary, Malta, and Poland. So even Western civilization does not take kindly to atheism. All right, when we come back on Canaan Cup, SE has found a solution to my uh, language problem. Oh, yeah. Canaan Cup.
You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Ephemeral. Ephemeral. No! <laughs> what do you say? What do you say? It's ephemeral. <laughs> that, um, well, that was Will Kane trying to pronounce the word ephemeral. Will has two problems. Um, That's all? To start. To start. There are, there are words he can't pronounce. Um, famously, reasonable was one. You pronounced it reasonable. 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 And there are also words you can pronounce, but that you can't say on radio. And yeah. you uh you don't know where that line let's is. Let's go sometimes. over those as well. Those would be Let's not. You ready? No, no, <laughs> no. Um so I was uh this reminded me. I was watching a movie called I Love You Man. You know this movie? It's classic. It is a great <laughs> movie with uh Paul Rudd and Jason Siegel. And it was on TBS, so it was like edited for cable. The right? other thing that you do when you you uh sign up for a movie on TBS is you've set aside 4 hours. Well, yeah, because because of the commercials, right? Yeah, they stretch yeah. that thing out over a four-hour period. They do. So I was watching "I Love You, Man," and the it was it was so funny. The uh, edited for TV curse substitutions that they used in this movie, mm. I could not stop laughing at these. In addition to laughing at the movie, um, so in this movie, the S word became shirt. Mm. So he'd be like, "You chicken shirt." <laughs> Which makes no sense. Um, the um, the A word became arm. So he'd be like, check out that armhole. I'm uncomfortable. What's an armhole? This got me thinking. Now, there are some classic ones of these. Absolute classics. Um, in Sideways, the A word became Ashcroft. So look at that, Ashcroft. <laughs> Is that political? What is that? Was that around the time of Ashcroft, maybe? Uh, True Lies, this is a great one. So the original line is, she's got an ass like a 10-year-old boy. That became, she's got a butt like two eggs in a napkin. (laughs) (laughs) Who writes these? I want to know because I want that job. This has to be the most creative the most creative job out there. It turns out our producer, Tony, mm. is really into this topic. Mm. When I told him that I wanted him to pull some sound on this, he was thrilled because apparently this is something that he and his buddies have discussed before. Yes, Tony? Oh, absolutely. And uh, the A word, uh, I did a little research in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's uh, when he says, pardon my French, but you're an A. Yes, yes. It says, pardon my French, but you're an aardvark. Uh, no. Yes, I'm reading. I'm looking at it right here. No. Aardvark. <laughs> well, I got to say, Aardvark is better. That's really creative because, you know, a lot of movies nowadays use the F word. And I found four clips with four different ways to say the F word. Uh, one, uh, two of them in Goodfellas alone. Go ahead. Play those. 
have uh, Sharon Stone's reaction to uh, to Sam, you know, to uh, Robert De Niro's character as she's walking out the door. The original line is, you know, "F you, Sam Rothstein." Well, here's the first one. Freak you, freak you, Sam Rothstein, freak you. Well, that one's just intuitive. That yeah, seems that's a, classic. That's an easy fill. Yeah, I've heard that before. What else you got? And they chip, but 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 uh, also earlier in the movie, somebody else says the f word. Uh, but they chip, but it, it, it's a completely different word. It's this one. Stuff you. Stuff you. Oh, oh you played it. I'm sorry, you. I don't have headphones here. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff uh, you. And then moving on to Die Hard, which is a classic action flick, one of my favorite ones, favorite movies of all time. Uh, the the classic line at the end where uh, Bruce Willis lights the uh, lighter as the plane's about to explode, and he says, yippee ki so-and-so. Well, we have uh, this one right here. yippee ki Mr. Falcon. It doesn't even sound like <laughs> his voice. <laughs> and actually, I, in this uh, little bit of research I did, I came across something uh, for Die Hard, and it's different in different versions. In Die Hard, it's yippee ki Mr. Falcon. In another version, it's yippee ki Kimo Sabi. <laughs> And the one is Yippie Kaye, my friend. And then, and then the best one, which is going to lead into my, uh, the best one, which is going to lead into the last thing I talk about, Yippie Kaye Melon Farmer. <laughs> what? Well, that makes no sense. Yeah. Well, it, it, it does, though, if you think about it, because the classic cult movie Repo Man with Emilio Estevez, they used Melon Farmer. There was a scene where they come across these two Spanish guys, and the original line is uh, he says, watch it, you M, you know, you MF, and the one guy goes, F you. But instead, they say, watch it, you melon farmer, and the guy goes, flip you. Nice. Wow. Nice. Wow. Well, those are good. Thank you, Tony. We appreciate that. I, I You know, this is... Uh, this tense. Is- it's tense is what it is. I mean... Well, you're tense because you would say some of these words on the air I and not know... I can promise you I would never say aardvark. <laughs> but I'm just gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take some of these. I'm gonna start calling people people armholes. You armholes. You chicken shirt. You melon farmer. You melon farmer. You hardvark. <laughs> you Ashcroft. You brought up the point about what kind of what a wonderful job writing Amazing. these. Amazing. How about the job of recording these? So you go in, you've been hired for the day to do some audio dubbing, right? So first of all, they're saying you need to sound a little like Bruce Willis. Right. Okay? Do your best Bruce Willis impression. Yeah. But here's your line. They hand you the sheet of paper, and you're like, you want me to say um, aardvark yeah. in, or Mr. Falcon in a Bruce Willis voice? Yes, yeah. please. Yes, Thank yes. You that. That's your only job. Yes. Um, but how fun would it be to just sit it at a desk all day and think of creative substitutes for bad words? John, we could do this. You, instead of having a beep or a drop for me, you could just drop aardvark in. You could just drop melon farmer in. And you know, that, it would work. You know that happens? Exactly. Yeah. Instead of that, instead of that, you could have... No. <laughs> you could have someone dubbed over saying ephemeral. 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 Uh, I did that once. I was on Red Eye, and, and Red Eye on... On Fox, um, Red Eye on Fox pre-tapes, luckily, because there's a lot of swearing on that show. And I didn't say a swear word. I, I actually said the word enema, and it was in context. But they didn't want to play that word. So they dubbed over muffin out of, for no reason. Muffin. It made no sense in context, but it was really 
funny. We could do something like that for you. For you. I don't have this problem. Tony, you have one more for us. Yes, and I'm not even going to tell you what they say, what they say originally. I'm just going to leave it to your imagination and play it, and I'm out the door. You see what happens, Larry? You see what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps? (laughs) That's my... What is that? What was the original? That must have been Big Lebowski. That's my favorite movie of all time. The I Big can Lebowski. tell by your reaction. What was the original line? I can't. I can't. I can't. You better not. But let's just say you see what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps is not the original. You see what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps. Is the Alps real? No. No? <laughs> oh, oh, Tony just came in. He's giving me uh, a page. He's giving you the script. Oh, See, so <laughs> so find is not right and Alps is not right. That's right. It's an alliteration, though. We're wow. gonna um, let's do this. Um, do you know what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps? Bad things. Bad things. Your Corvette gets bashed in. Um, let's do this. We'll take a break. We'll get this back on higher ground. <laughs> we got a little more on faith versus non-believers and government regulation and cigarettes. It just keeps going and going and going and going. Eight 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 nine hundred three three nine three. Kane and Cup. Part of the next generation of talk radio, Kane and Cup is on. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Kane and Cup returns now. I'm tired of these monkey fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday plane. That's <laughs> Stuff from, you from Stuart Large <laughs> on Twitter. Movie replacements for curse words have proven to be ingenious, and you on Twitter are helping to contribute to the ones we might have missed. And there are a lot, and we're going to employ them on this show because clearly. I have a problem. Man. Yeah, D-, D. Carney on Twitter says, there's an obvious reason why SC Cup is reciting the replacements for curse words instead of Will Kane. It's true. He cannot be trusted. <laughs> he cannot be trusted. But um, you know what? You do have you have a fan. Let me just tell you, you have a fan. I do? Yeah. Foose1791 on Twitter says, I love that Will Kane is an intelligent, educated, brilliant dude who is still down-home Texas country boy at heart. Hashtag speech. That's my boy, Blue. <laughs> You're my boy, Blue! Um, let me bring in Julie in San Antonio. She's been on hold for quite some time, and uh, we did leave an open question earlier about whether or not you as a voter would value faith of any form, even if it's not your own, over non-believers, over the concept of atheism. What do you say, Julie? I will. Hi. Hi. Um, yeah, I, faith is, is nothing, really, if you don't live it. Um, in particular... Well, let's take the last election, for instance. In 12, um, we had a choice between a man who lives his religion, who does for other people, who is self-sacrificing, probably has given more to charity than most people make in a lifetime. And then we had the other guy. And unfortunately, most people didn't feel the way I do and didn't look at his works. 
or we wouldn't have our current president. That's actually very interesting, Julie. What you're doing is taking an abstract question I asked people. Would you vote for someone who doesn't share your faith versus someone uh, who who has no faith? And, and you're putting into the context of you had that choice two years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I know we have Mormon listeners, but we also have many non-Mormon listeners. And so the question well, was presented to them. Mormons. I'm not a Mormon. That's my There's point. There's a lot of Christians who judged him because he was a Mormon, which is wrong. Right, and what what you're talking about, Julie, is is, is faith in action and faith in practice. And it right. doesn't matter what it's called or how it's institutionalized. It, it matters how you live it. Thanks for your call. We appreciate it. Uh, we got a lot of tweets on this. Will it was it was a real it was a real talker. Someone uh, on Twitter named R Lucas Video said, "You're discussing this in a vacuum. Faith or not, it's a component." in what makes the person who he is. Um, Control wrote, there's something to be said about the difference between atheism versus anti-theism, which is on the rise. And I think that was the distinction I was trying to make between an atheist like myself and an anti-theist like Bill Maher. Right. Um, (laughs) It's the difference between having a lack of belief and pushing back on the concept of belief. Yeah. Right. 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 yeah, oh, and by the way, someone on Twitter said um, they would vote for me for president. I know you. Which is that. that's not that's not right, man. That's not. <laughs> I'm not with you on that one. <laughs> well, between atheism, Mike Francesa, what not we're doing with we, our children? We covered this, a lot today. Covered a lot, and a lot of people with different points of views. Brendan Ike. Yeah. Yeah, we covered a lot, but that's the beauty. That's the beauty of this show that we get to uh, we get to cover a lot. We don't have to stick with the the usual political talkers, although we get to those when they're interesting. But Topics that should make your dinner party better tonight. You take these home. You right. introduce these at the at your dinner table, and the fun part is ferreting out the different opinions. The fun part is finding where your opinion lies within the spectrum on all of these things. Not so much I'm right, you're wrong. Although mostly I'm right. (laughs) Although mostly I'm right. Mostly you're wrong. No, that's not true. I think we agree on on a lot. But you know what I'm going to do for the rest of this weekend? What? I'm going to watch edited for TV movies around the clock just and just paying attention to the curse word substitutes. Because I, I vow to you right now, I am going to incorporate these into my everyday speak. Because why not? And it's funny. And I want to see the looks on people's faces when I call them a chicken shirt or, or an armhole. That's the hard part. You're going to have to commit some of these to memory. Oh, oh they're there. They're, they're already in there. Um, I don't use MF a lot. But if I do, monkey fighting. <laughs> monkey fighting. It just became monkey fighting. I like Melon Farmer. Melon Farmer's good, too. Melon Farmer's good, too. Um, I also like Stuff You. Stuff You. You know what? Stuff You. I'll tell you what I'm not going to do because I crossed a thing off my list. I checked the box. Um, We're talking about earlier in the show what defines a man, right? And a few weeks ago we discussed whether or not a man needs to see the Godfather. And in your confessional, I admitted to you that I had not. Yeah. Box checked. Oh, you saw it? Saw the Godfather. Saw the Godfather Part 2. Oh, well, there's another one. Saw the Godfather Part 3 as well. That was some years ago. I made the mistake of seeing that one first. Oh, okay. So what did you think? Good. Holds up. We're talking about an early 70s movie. Holds up. Most people think Godfather 2 is better than 1. What'd I am think? one of those people as well. Yeah. Godfather 2 was phenomenal. There are very few of those sequels that are better than the first. I think I think Terminator 2, 
Info Show. I'm on a 70s movies kick, trying to see all the big ones. I saw Taxi Driver, uh, Raging Bulls in the queue right now. It's interesting what holds up and what does not. I'll say yeah. this. Godfather, uh, the, the two Godfather movies hold up, but you can see the edges uh, wearing. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Well, maybe that's a, a topic for next week. All what right. movies hold up and what do not. Thanks for hanging out with us this morning on Kane and Cup. We've enjoyed it. I'm at Will Kane. She's at Essie Cup. We'll see you again next Saturday morning. Come hang out with us. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network.